Good morning. Welcome to Bringing Virtual Care Home. My name's Tina Nall, and I'm the Chief Clinical Officer at Anelto, and I will be your host. My guest today is Katia Sedel Chapola, and she is the CEO and founder of Hopper Health. Our conversation today is going to be about healthcare for neurodivergent adults. Good morning, Katia. How are you? Good morning. I'm very well. Thank you. Good. Thank you for being my guest. Um, if we could start by having you give a quick overview of your background for the audience, I'd appreciate it. Sure, absolutely. Um, so I'm Katya Sedel Chapola. I actually started my career as a combat medic um, in the Army, spent some time in finance and fintech and startups um, in the Midwest, and then moved into healthcare um, where I led customer digital strategy at a an insurer called HCSC, which is Blue Cross Plants in Five States, and then was the corporate vice president of product development and innovation for Blue Cross Blue Shield of Kansas City, which is a, a regional health plan um, in Kansas and Missouri. And after that experience, obviously learned a lot about healthcare uh, working at that scale and left to found my own company, Hopper Health. Wow, that is wonderful. Can you give the audience an overview of Hopper Health and its mission? Absolutely. Um, so Hopper Health is virtual primary care and healthcare navigation services specifically for neurodivergent adults. And neurodivergence can be anything from autism, ADHD, OCD, Tourette's, dyslexia. Um, it's actually 15 to 20% of the adult population in the United States. And I think that's something that's really important to keep in mind when we think about why do folks like me, because I am autistic, need primary care, is that we we are a large and often disabled part of the population, and we frankly deserve care that works better for us. So we've been working really hard to build primary care that is virtual, meeting people where they are, because people like me are often spending a lot of time on the internet as well. So it's a much more kind of comfortable place for us to get care. Wow, that's great. Um, so what does supportive health care for the neurodivergent population look like? Yeah, so I think, you know, I, I named a lot of diagnoses and categories of conditions in talking about neurodivergence, um, but really what they all have in common is differences with uh, sensory issues, information processing, and communication. So it's really important that we get those categories right. And unfortunately, a lot of times, especially in primary care where providers, you know, they're pretty rushed, they have to provide care very quickly, they kind of have to crank through the day, they have to follow their workflow. Um, people like me can get left behind because for us, when you think about even the experience of going into a doctor's office, maybe the getting there is stressful because we're taking public transportation or we have to drive showing up in the office, the lighting might bother us if we have you know, visual sensory issues, filling out forms. If we struggle with dyspraxia, it can be really uncomfortable to have to fill out the same form fields over and over. I mean, at what point at the doctor's office are you ever filling out a new form? I feel like I've been filling out the same forms for the last 20 years. Um, but then even in the interaction with the provider, I think it really goes beyond empathy. And it's there's a lot of um, weight placed on how are we asking questions of a neurodivergent individual and how are we gathering context so that we can make better diagnoses. 
Because another thing to be really aware of for folks who are not neurodivergent or may not have neurodivergent people in their family is that medical education spends almost no time on neurodivergent conditions and frankly, it spends really zero time on understanding what those conditions may look like in adults, unless someone is specializing in psychiatry, for example. Um, so the kind of the broader provider population really isn't aware of our differences. Um, and so it, it's kind of up to us to make sure that providers know what we need. And in that setting where you know, the provider really kind of has their set of questions they want to work through. You're there for a specific symptom. There's there's often not enough time invested in that interaction to really pull out the information about what is bothering us most. Um, I think especially in primary care, really the majority of diagnoses at that level are called differential diagnosis. So that means that the provider is not necessarily doing specific tests or measuring things to be able to say yes or no, A or B, you have condition X. It's really more about information gathering, their experience, and also even their intuition. And so if they're not getting from us what they expect for a certain diagnosis, so for example, autistic people often present pain very differently. I tend to kind of lock myself down when I'm in pain because I want someone to take me seriously. But that means that in the past, I someone may say to me, well, you, you can't be hurting that badly if your pain is a six. And I'm like, well, if seven is dead and they're like, whoa, whoa, that's like, that shouldn't even be on the scale. Mm -hmm. So th the way that our bodies work, the way that our brains work is different enough that providers in a differential diagnosis environment can really struggle. Um, I think there's also, unfortunately, a very real risk then of what's called diagnostic overshadowing. So we see providers, this happens a lot in the ED and also in primary care, where if someone does show up with a known diagnosis of, you know, an, one type of neurodivergence or another, or perhaps a mental illness like bipolar or depression, um, oftentimes people's physical symptoms and complaints do get attributed to those other conditions. And so we can spend months or years waiting for a diagnosis of a physical illness. And unfortunately, because neurodivergence often highly overlaps with things like inflammatory bowel diseases, seizure disorders, autoimmune disorders, chronic pain, we, we do have medical conditions that we need people to understand and to treat. So one way that we're helping combat this um, is actually geriatrics has some really amazing clinical tools in the way that they engage with patients and think about their context and then use that context to build a care plan. So for example, um, if I'm a geriatrician, I may not ask my patient outright, how many times a week are you exercising? And by the way, for a neurodivergent person, that question makes my brain lock up because I'm like, well, what's exercise? Is it raising my heart rate? How many times am I supposed to be exercising? What's the right answer? Should I be giving the right answer or should I say, you know, so there's just a lot that's sort of happening behind the scenes. Um, but in geriatrics, the, the clinician may say, hey, how's your dog doing? Are you, are you guys getting out? Are you feeding him? Is, is, you know, Bob still stopping by to make sure that, you know, you've got dog food. So there's, there's a much different approach to the way that information is collected 
And that's incredibly important, not just for empathy and trust building, but also to sort of understand what are all the things that are happening around that person and how can we use that information then when we're making recommendations and diagnoses to do a better job of understanding like what are they even capable of? Because if I am, you know, an autistic person and I've been diagnosed with type 2 diabetes and you're telling me, you know, change your lifestyle, you got to exercise more, you got to eat healthy. Well, if I'm stressed, maybe my only safe food is Fruit Loops. And so if I'm eating Fruit Loops three times a day, there's no hope that my diet is going to change. And so all of these recommendations really need to be taken into context, especially as we're thinking about kind of downstream chronic illnesses. Wow. Um, I've spent the last 38 years as a healthcare professional, and it was yesterday that I learned the term neurodivergence. So I think that your um, identification of a deficit within our healthcare system is so real. Um, can you talk a little bit about the role of the navigator for this population? Yeah, so the navigator is incredibly important. Um, for Hopper, our navigators are actually neurodivergent people themselves. They have lived experiences, whether diagnosed or undiagnosed, that part is less important, more so than they just know how to communicate with neurodivergent people because they are one and it doesn't have to be taught. Um, so there's already sort of a level of understanding that's there as they're going back and forth. But what's really interesting about this role is this is really intended to be the person that kind of wraps around all of the care that the, the clinician is then recommending so that our patients have someone that they can talk to about anything. So, for example, um, maybe someone you know gets referred to go get an MRI. They've got some anxiety about it. The navigator is there to say, OK, we know that you know you have sensory issues with sound and light, you don't like being touched and you're uncomfortable laying on hard surfaces, here are the list of accommodations you can take with you to this appointment. You can give this to them and say, "Here's the, I know this is reasonable, my doctor told me, and I would like you to accommodate me in these ways just to make procedures more comfortable. Um, because I think what we've also found as we've been out, especially talking with specialists, is like you, there's not a lot of familiarity with neurodivergence or what people might need. But as soon as we talk about like, hey, would you be willing to maybe dim the lights a little bit or have a patient sit on the chair instead of the table? I've never had a provider that said, no, I would not be willing to accommodate my patient as long as it doesn't change the actual care that I have to perform. Um, and so there's, there's a lot of like willingness, but I think really the role of a navigator is to help empower the patient. The other piece that's super important about the navigator is that we all know healthcare is, is a world of red tape. Um, and the navigator's job is really to help the patient cut through all of that with a machete. I mean, no holds barred, help them figure things out, take the lead if necessary, whether it's working with insurance companies or other providers or you know, figuring out side effects of a medication, or even just answering questions like, hey, do you have any resources on asking for accommodations at work, because we, we absolutely do have a ton of resources and there's a lot more that's kind of coming online um, with other companies in this space as well, who are really doing more of like the employment support, which is awesome. It's so needed. Um, so that navigator is there to help support the executive functioning, frankly, of 
the patient because that's that's an area where when we talk about executive functioning, it's things like sequencing activities or planning ahead or timeliness because I also am ADHD and I can tell you if I have something to do at 3 p.m. and that's like the one thing I have to do all day, my whole day is non-functional until like 2.30 because everything is getting psyched up to like go do whatever it is I have to do. And it's not about like fear or dread. It's just that's the reality. Um, so even things like rescheduling appointments can be incredibly difficult for us. And we don't engage in primary care. We do tend to end up in the emergency room more often than not. So the navigator is there to really kind of support the person from a just sensory perspective, all the things that they need around them in order to even access healthcare. That's, it's an incredibly important role. Thank you. And so what are some other key strategies um, that you're employing to create a safe space in healthcare for neurodivergent adults? Yeah. So some of it is even in the way that we build our company. Um, so it's really important to me, I think in the disability community, there's a saying, nothing about us without us. And for way too long, we have seen research not include us. We've seen academia not include us. We've seen, you know, the healthcare system not include us in, in design considerations. And this is super common across all marginalized populations. It's certainly not unique to neurodivergent people. Um, so we're even doing some things in the way that we hire and build our company. So for example, because we wanna hire peer navigators who are themselves neurodivergent, um, we actually do blind interviews because this is a role that is communicating with our patients entirely through text messaging, email, you know, digital communications. There's, there's no face-to-face -face component. And so for us, we want to reduce as many barriers as possible for people interviewing and, and accessing the job so that they themselves can be comfortable while they're doing the work and reduce the risk of burnout so that we can ensure continuity for our patients. Because the, the number one thing that we must do as a healthcare organization is be trustworthy and provide as much continuity as possible for the patients that we work with. Wow, that's great. And I know that you're planning to um, start your primary care um, practice in California and New York. Um, mm -hmm. So what is key about those two states that have that as your origin? I mean, in some ways, it's a numbers game. There's there's huge populations in both states. Um, so that is very helpful because the reality is, is you know, there's there's not some map that we can go to that says, here's where all the neurodivergent people live. They happen to live in Omaha, Nebraska, right? Like, hey, that'd be great if we knew that. Um, so we really need to kind of start in places where we have a higher chance of finding patients, serving patients, you know, building some momentum. Um, but then from there, so the other thing that we've done is we build a wait list. So we do have some knowledge of, you know, we've got people from all over the country at this point that are waiting for our services. Um, so we should be able to pretty quickly expand once we've kind of got those initial hubs set up. And especially with virtual primary care, expansion really just becomes a matter of making sure that we've got clinicians that are licensed in the states we want to operate in. Oh, great. Okay. Well, so how did your experience at Blue Cross Blue Shield help inform your perspective and guide you towards this endeavor? Yeah, I think um, for me, it was seeing the cost 
and waste of healthcare at massive scale. I mean, the, the numbers are staggering and being a part of a payer and seeing the cost impact of, you know, type two diabetes on the order of like $200 billion a year to our health system um, or things like end-stage renal disease or think like things you wouldn't necessarily imagine, biologic drugs for Crohn's and ulcerative colitis. Um, I think for me, it allowed me to really think about, okay, if we have this systemic cost problem, what's driving that? And it's frankly, all the inefficiencies in the experience for the patient, fragmented data, fragmented systems, fragmented, you know, having to make six phone calls to five different places to get one thing in your life taken care of. Um, so for me, it really kind of helped me double down on the idea of what is the job to be done by the patient in any given scenario and how many roadblocks can we remove from that process? And I think, you know, downstream bureaucracy, unfortunately, I can't <laughs> affect everything. Um, but I at least kind of know where the big sticking points are in, in this crazy system. And so I think I can use all that knowledge to help my patients navigate and help our navigators be more effective because we just have so much awareness of how to work with payers when there's a prior authorization, for example, or how to work with a health system um, if you need to get imaging done at one place versus another. We just have a high level of understanding of like how it all works so that we can do it better. So is that knowledge that you impart upon your navigators at the point of hire in their training? Yes, absolutely. Um, so it's really important for the navigators to understand that high level view of the ecosystem. So um, in, in sort of the design world, we talk about who are the actors. And so understanding that the actors are the payer, the provider, the patient, maybe other sort of third party solutions and just giving them that sort of mental map of how it all works together. The other thing that we bring home for them, and I think this is pretty uncommon, especially in healthcare startups, is we want them to understand how does money move around that system? Because if you understand how money is flowing, you can definitely understand who in what situation is motivated to actually solve a problem. And so we give them the ability to kind of go straight to the issue versus trying to have to go through three separate steps of, you know, do I talk to this person or that person? Do I call this phone number or that phone number? Like they just have, they have much more agency to kind of drive their workflow and solve problems on the behalf of their patients. Wow. I, I, with your knowledge, there could be so much efficiency gained in the healthcare yeah. system. So great. Well, so um, what's next for Hopper Health? Oh, boy. Um, so a few things. We are definitely working on partnering um, with payers, likely at a regional level to start so that we can be you know, working more in a value-based contracting model. So we really wanna be able to get to the point where our patients are paying nothing out of pocket for our services. But that means that we then have agreements with health insurance companies that we're managing our patients' health really well and that their outcomes are better than you know, others who are matched to the same cohort. So it's actually a situation where 
incentives for once are aligned with us as the provider, the, the health insurance payer and the patient, everybody wins. Um, so we're trying to move to that contracting model as quickly as possible so that more people can access Hopper without having to pay a membership fee, without having to pay for visits. That's really important to us. Okay. And I, I saw on the website that 2023 is when you're going to go live in your first two states. Is there a, a targeted month or is that really at January 1? When's that happening? <laughs> yeah. Um, I wish it were January 1. It's it's actually the beginning of March. Um, we may have a small kind of private beta test that we will launch sooner. And really that timeline is driven by, we wanted to make sure that we were in network with some of the major insurers in New York and California. So we're trying to align our go live with being able to also then accept insurance so that we may have some folks who you know don't have insurance or just really want our services, great. They can sign up anytime. Um, and then folks who want to use their insurance benefits will we'll still have an answer for them as well. Great. Well, uh, are there any parting thoughts you'd like to share with our audience about the work that you're doing uh, before we close? Yeah, I mean, I think um, the thing that's most important for neurodivergent people like me, and frankly, neurodivergent people not like me, who are especially folks who are multiply marginalized. I mean, I have a ton of privilege based on my background, my work history, all the things that I'm doing, um, is just think about communication differences. And if, if someone is showing up in a way that maybe feels very direct to you or feels a little more abrupt, like I, I would encourage people to get curious about why that might be. Because I think there's so many really wonderful people out there who are neurodivergent, who are investing so much energy in hiding who they are, that that is the piece that's actually making us sicker. So the less that we have to do that and the more that we can be accepted for just, you know, our traits, our characteristics, the things we need, um, frankly, the happier everybody will be because we'll all just be able to be ourselves. Yeah, there is absolutely an art to being with people where they are when they show up. Yeah. So, well, thank you so much for this information. Um, I hope we can talk again in the future and see how your company's doing. In the meantime, thank you all for joining uh, Bringing Virtual Care Home. Um, I hope you'll join us for our next episode very soon and have a great day. Mm -hmm.